Welcome to the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now your host of the show, Dr. Jennifer K. Thompson. Hi there, and thanks for joining us. You're about to hear my recent conversation with Courtney Joslin, who is a resident fellow at the R Street Institute. Now, you may recall we have had a couple of other folks from the R Street Institute join us. Most recently, we had Shoshana Weissman talk about Section 230. Courtney works in telehealth initiatives. She works on healthcare regulation, occupational licensing. And today, we wanted to talk to her about the kinds of changes to regulation, to licensing, to healthcare generally that have been made during the pandemic in response to the crisis and what we can learn from those changes. Are there things that we can take away from this experience that will improve healthcare and healthcare outcomes for people? Uh, What has worked? What hasn't worked? What does the future look like? We talk a little bit about vaccine passports. All in all, I think you're going to find this a really interesting conversation. Now, before she was at R Street, Courtney was at the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. And she was at the Mercatus Center at George Mason before that, where she was an MA fellow. That's when she was getting her master's there. She writes all the time for lots of different outlets. She's been published in Politico, the Huffington Post, the Orange County Register. Uh, She regularly testifies before state legislatures on the issues she studies. And she is doing great work in lots of different outlets and in lots of different places. Even though R Street is a DC-based think tank and she's often writing on governmental regulation, she does not live in DC. She actually lives in Alabama. So we talk a little bit about that and how that gives her sort of a different perspective. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thank you, Courtney, for joining us today from Alabama, right, where you live and have lived for some time. But you live there, but you work for R Street. And we've had uh, some of your colleagues on before, but R R Street doesn't have like an Alabama office apart from you, right? Correct. Yeah, I guess I am the one representing (laughs) the Alabama chapter um, of R Street uh, for now. So we do have our, our staff is kind of unique in that we are based in D.C., but there are quite a few of us that are spread out throughout the country. Um, and then usually we're um, kind of in and out of D.C. when uh, we need to be. But of course, this past year has kind of put a damper on that. So, yeah, um, yeah I guess I'm just uh, holding down the Alabama chapter. So you are already kind of uh, ready for the pandemic in terms of remote work and things like that, because you'd already been doing that for a while. I was, yeah. I I work mostly from home anyway, so it wasn't too big of an adjustment for me. The only difference was that now my husband was joining me from as working from home, um, and I've never been so grateful, I will say, to not still live in D.C. in a tiny apartment. That was um, a good time to be in a state where you can live in a house that isn't the size of a shoebox when you have two people working from home constantly. <laughs> oh no, that makes total sense. You're not talking on top of each other. I wonder too, actually, this is, I mean, we're going to talk about a lot of different things, but I'm just thinking as you're talking about this, there's got to be some advantage in living outside of DC when you're doing policy, because DC is such a, you know, very, in some ways, a very small world uh, and it can get disconnected from everything else. Does it affect your perspective on things to be in Alabama as you're thinking about policy and how it affects people in the different states and all that? 
than it would have been or is when you have been in D.C.? It really and truly has. And I think in ways that I didn't even anticipate um, because, you know, D.C. is a city full of transplants. Everybody's from somewhere else. So you kind of think that you're getting, you know, the best representation of all these different states and cities. And, you know, to an extent you are, but you're also, you know, you're all there for a certain reason. And usually that's because you're all interested in kind of the same things. You're all there to become, you know, policy wonks, um, experts in certain topics. And it's great for, for the intellectual part of it. But I think you can really quickly get disconnected from um, sort of what's going on in various parts of the country. So for yeah. me, moving to Alabama, I had never lived in Alabama before. And even though I was from the South, um, I had not been in what I consider the deep South before. And so when I came here, part of what got me so interested in doing some of the health care policy work that I've done has been living in a place where, you know, in D.C., we could talk about health policy all day long. But I had, a, you know, a doctor's office within walking distance of my apartment. I had, you know, we had CVSs and uh, different clinics basically on every corner. But then I moved to uh, Alabama and all of a sudden I was in a place where even though I'm in Montgomery, which is the capital, um, if you go an hour south to Troy, which is where there's a pretty big university, um, Troy University there. And I had a colleague at the time who was living there and she said that um, she was expecting a baby and she was going to drive up to the hospital in Montgomery um, to uh, for her uh, medical appointments. And I was like, oh, wow, that's, you know, almost an hour drive. Why are you driving that far? And she said, Troy doesn't have a maternity ward at the hospital. And oh I was gosh, like, wow. that's kind of shocking because, you know, this is a rural place, but it's not that rural. Um, and she said that friends of hers had told her to be prepared also when, um, for example, allergy testing for their toddlers. Uh, my understanding is that a lot of parents at certain times test their toddlers for certain allergies, and they warned her the best way to do that was to drive up to the Montgomery Hospital, test in the parking lot in case something happened because there wasn't uh, anything in the Troy area that would accommodate that. And that was just kind of, you know, kind of that moment of like, wow, I'm back in a place where some of the things we talked about are very real, just day-to-day -day, um, considerations that maybe I hadn't thought about. And you know, I'm sure a lot of people are like, well, duh, of course, there are places like that. But when you're talking about them versus being in one of them, I think really kind of got me more invested in finding the solutions in health policy that actually make a difference in people's lives. Yeah, it's fantastic. And so is that you're working your your title as your resident fellow in competition policy? What uh, that can mean a lot of different things, I think, to people. But you're, you're looking at competition in healthcare, but you look at in all sorts of different areas, right? Healthcare is not the only area that you work in. Correct. So our competition policy team, um, it is kind of a catch-all, right? Because competition means a lot of things. So we work on, um, it's competition in healthcare, but we don't necessarily think of it strictly in terms of competition. Rather, the reason we frame it that way is because we think that, um, increased competition in healthcare in terms of leveling the playing field uh, in areas where uh, there are unnecessary barriers is what's going to increase access to healthcare for patients. Um, and so we cover healthcare. We also cover like alcohol policy. Um, we cover, um, of course, telehealth, which is health related, but we also co cover things like um, energy, electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles, anything where um, certain industries, we believe there are barriers to both 
um, the practitioners and the consumers in these cases, where the government is sort of putting up some barriers that a lot of times they're just barriers that have been in place for a long time for certain reasons. But then as we progress, right, we like to readdress why some barriers are up in the first place and whether or not we still need them and whether or not they're unnecessarily impacting uh, people who are trying to create, you know, basically value in society. Yeah, well, that's a great place to have this conversation because one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you was to think about how the landscape has changed, what we've learned, that sort of thing during the course of the pandemic. But, you know, last spring, so this is, it's April of 2021, but last spring um, in 2020 and throughout the summer when things were really going badly, we talked to a number of different people who work in various areas of policy to say, hey, what's changing and what are we learning and what would we want to preserve after this is over? And at the time, it was kind of like crossing your fingers. Hopefully someday this will end. Now we can kind of see some light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, But I remember, I think we talked to Adam Thier at Mercatus, who was telling us about um, the Americans for Tax Reform had been keeping a list of all the regulations that were being waived throughout the pandemic to allow for uh, better healthcare to adjust to the changing circumstances. Obviously, in some cases, things having to do with the vaccines, there were changes. And the concern was, will those things remain afterwards? So we want to talk to you about now that we're getting closer, especially in the areas that you look at, what have we learned and what what is going to change or what can change, I suppose. But But I'd love to get your opinion as you think about the course of the pandemic, what has happened, Are you, as we're getting hopefully again closer to the end or seeing light at the end of the tunnel, are you optimistic about the impact of the last year in terms of competition, regulation, leveling the playing field, as you said? I am pretty optimistic, which um, I can't always say when it comes to policy reform. So, um, and the reason I am optimistic is that, you know, as you talk to Adam Thier, I'm sure, because he's done a lot of great work on this. Uh, he probably talked a lot about the fact that, you know, some of the stuff that people who work on regulatory reform um, have focused on for the last, you know, probably decade now that's kind of gained traction is looking at kind of what I mentioned earlier, which is, okay, what regulations do we have in place that were maybe there for a reason to begin with, but now we may not need. And so we, there are quite a few of us who kind of were out there over the last few years saying, yes, there are barriers, especially in healthcare access. This can include technology to healthcare. Um, There are regulations in place that just don't really fit anymore with our society and its goals and its uh, its, uh, values. And so we've been saying that for a while, but of course, policy uh, seems like it happens one of two ways, really fast or really slow. (laughs) And so, right. And so you know, a lot of the regulatory reform wasn't kind of like the hot, sexy topic when it came to state legislatures. They had all kinds of things to focus on. I mean, um, you know, besides like the Affordable Care Act, which of course was a huge, uh, huge hot topic when it was happening, but, you know, that wasn't really big until like these kind of uh, smaller regulatory reforms that we're talking about. And so for a lot of this, it was like, okay, yeah, yeah, we hear you, you know, this might be a good idea, but this isn't the focus. We have budgets to focus on, we have education, all these things. And then we kind of ended up with what I've been calling like a natural experiment in what happens when you sort of take all of these regulatory reforms in healthcare in particular, 
And they kind of all happen at once, which is just kind of unheard of. And so to, to, to kind of mention a few of the reforms I'm talking about, um, there are a few. So one is in telehealth. And I think both people are, at least were vaguely familiar with telehealth, if now not uh, intimately familiar with telehealth, which is basically accessing doctors or nurses or pharmacists via um, Zoom or uh, by email or by phone only or by video uh, chat. Yeah. So this is, this I think is a topic we definitely should talk about because I think it's a perfect example of what you were saying. You know, there are things that there are regulations, there are things in place, practices in place that we would never look at except for the fact of this crisis. And what's, what's also interesting to me about this is um, you, when we talk about crisis, I can't help but think of Bob Higgs' book, Crisis in Leviathan, that says basically when you have a crisis, what happens is, I'm paraphrasing, this is, he says it much more eloquently, you know, government gets bigger, there are more regulations, there's more growth in bureaucracy, that kind of thing. And here we have an opportunity to say, let's change things and take away some regulations. It forces us to look at it. And telehealth is this amazing area where if you had said to me in February of last year, do you know anyone who's had a telehealth appointment? I would have said, no, no, I don't know anybody. Now, if you ask me today, I know tons of people. I know tons of people. I know people who've, you know, had telehealth appointments and things have come up like, well, I meet with this doctor, but I was going to be out of town and I was going to be in a different state and I couldn't meet because they said I couldn't talk to them. They can't actually give me service because I'm in a different state, that sort of thing. They know so much more about it. And I think this is a case where it's like, like so many things that we have adopted and tried in the midst of the pandemic that we would probably taken us another 50 years to get to has opened up all these possibilities. So tell us a little bit about prior to the pandemic, what kinds of regulations, restrictions were there on telehealth and how has that changed? Yeah, so the telehealth restrictions prior to COVID um, were both on state and federal levels, right? So both states and the federal government um, have uh, regulations in place uh, on telehealth. And so one of the interesting places I think to start is on Medicare. Um, and what the federal government did on the Medicare side when the pandemic hit. And one of the things they did that was probably the most no-brainer reform uh, that I think people realized was prior to the pandemic, if you were on Medicare, if you wanted to receive uh, a telehealth uh, visit with a doctor, you had to be in a uh, federally designated healthcare professional shortage area, right? So that is where uh, basically if you live in a certain part of the country where it is designated by the federal government that you that you are defined as an area with a shortage of healthcare professionals, you can partake in telehealth. The other thing was you had to be located in a clinic or a doctor's office to receive a telehealth visit. So you didn't, you weren't able to take it at home. You still had to be in a certain location to talk to a doctor via video. Um, and so that- okay, wait, of- I'm going to stop you for just a second <laughs> because- Every time we talk to somebody who looks at this kind of um, this kind of restriction, I always want to at least give the benefit of the doubt to whoever made these regulations to say there seems like there must like there must have been a good reason for it. What is the reason for? I mean, what is the reason for making those kinds of restrictions to say? I I understand if you want to say well maybe we shouldn't have people using telehealth because it's inferior to do that. But in certain cases we have to, because they're not going to get service any other way, but then we're still going to make them be in a doctor's office or we're still going to have to like, what's the reasoning behind that? Is there reasoning behind that? 
I, I, like you, like to give the benefit of the doubt. And I think where this came from was, um, again, we're talking about technology, remember, right? Like when these regulations were set, we do not have, we did not have access to the internet like we do now. Yeah. So I think the reason this, this paradigm came into play was that back then when you were accessing a doctor via telehealth, it wasn't that you were expected to access your doctor from your home on your laptop or on your iPhone. What was really happening was that you were, you had a doctor in town, let's say, but he referred you to a specialist. And let's say you're, the specialist was, you know, say I'm in Montgomery, Alabama, the specialist is in Topeka, Kansas, right? So I could go to my doctor's office and then I could access that specialist through a telehealth platform at the doctor's office without having to go to Topeka. Um, gotcha. And so I think okay. that's kind of the, the, the rationale behind it. But again, we've gotten pretty far past that being, right, the, the type of technology we're working with. Um, and so with the, in the case of a lot of these, it's just that we haven't caught up in terms of the regulation with what we're dealing with now uh, in terms of the technology we have access to that allows us to access all of these telehealth platforms. And that can be you know, kind of both good and bad. Sometimes yeah. you uh, want, it's great that we've had this much progress and that there weren't necessarily um, major, kind of actually what Adam Sierra talks about, which is permissionless innovation, right? right? So it's kind of good when you kind of get ahead of the curve when it comes to progress and technology, because then you're basically asking for forgiveness rather than permission right. to innovate, right? And that's how we end up with, with some of these like majorly popular technological platforms we have now were with companies who basically said, we're going to do this because there's nothing technically stopping us. So we're going to do it before we get regulated out of existence, basically. Right, right, right. Um, which is kind of, so with telehealth, just that jump in technological access combined with the fact that the pandemic hit and all of a sudden this is a primary source of medical care for people meant a huge shift in, in regulation again on the state and the federal level for this kind of thing. So, and, and that makes perfect sense. And the opportunities that opens up, I think, I mean, we, we should probably think about them in the same way that we've seen some of these other changes, right? So I'm thinking about in education, I'm glad my kids were able to go to school because there was a model that worked online when it comes down to it, I'd rather have them in the classroom. And so, you know, now some kids will have the opportunity if the schools can continue to manage it to learn from anywhere, even if they'd prefer, you know, other people prefer to be in the classroom. And I suspect it's not the case that most schools are going to maintain both those opportunities. Right. But even like you think about the work uh, environment, you know, now people have shown that they can work remotely. It may not be the ideal all the time. There may be times when you need to see people in person, but we know those possibilities exist in a way that we didn't before. So when it comes to telehealth, can we say, well, look, all kinds of people are going to be able to access different doctors in different places, have more access as a result of this. So for sure, let's preserve this. Or are you seeing, is it too early? And I know every state's going to be different. Um, is it too early to say that's going to remain in place and will actually put you know, pressure on doctors to give better service because there's more competition? Or do we not know yet what's happening? So yes and no to, to all those questions, basically, yeah. um, which is, you know, is this going to increase the competition among doctors? Yes, but I think also what we need right now is that we've had providers say, you know what, we like telehealth, it's worked pretty well. And kind of back to what I was saying about the natural experiment side of it was that all of a sudden we had states 
and the federal government trying to like scramble to figure out what they needed to roll back so that people could actually access telehealth services. And then we ended up having about a year's worth of that being, you know, in, like incredibly popular amongst Americans. Um, and now we're seeing a lot of things coming out in the research showing, okay, here's what's worked, here's what hasn't. And one of the things that I think will decide whether or not um, some of these proposals are here to stay or the popularity in telehealth, I guess, is regulatory certainty. And so what I mean by that is just, we've had all of these regulations temporarily suspended over the past year, right? These weren't laws passed in a day back in March or April of 2020. And so it was great because they were basically like, during the public health emergency, this is what's in play. We're getting rid of all these restrictions for the time being to make sure people can get access to healthcare. Well, now that we're slowly winding down, as you said, in, in the pandemic, right? We're vaccinating a lot better now at a higher rate. Um, now people are left, and especially doctor's offices and hospitals saying, okay, so now what do we do? Do we go back to the way things were before? Or are some of these things going to become permanent? And that's really important because a lot of these places, you know, especially if you think of a small doctor's office, um, using telehealth might be, especially during the pandemic, um, using telehealth became somewhat easier for them in the sense that uh, the federal government also said, okay, there are HIPAA laws at play, which basically protects uh, patient privacy. And one of the things where they didn't allow a lot of telehealth platforms to talk to your doctor. So you couldn't talk on FaceTime to your doctor prior to the pandemic. But during the pandemic, that was actually a viable option was that you could just call your family doctor on FaceTime for your appointment and that was fine. Um, but now, you know, you're considering, well, are they gonna be able to do that anymore? Or are they going to have to invest in, you know, HIPAA compliant telehealth platforms? Yeah. And if they are, they need to know that now so they're not wasting the money, right? For a small doctor's office, they're not wasting the investment in something like this. They don't even know it's going to continue. Um, and so the regulatory certainty, I think, is what's going to help, uh, help us down the line in terms of whether or not this is, uh, it's here to stay. Telehealth is definitely here to stay, but to the extent of which it's here to stay um, will be determined by, by these regulations and whether or not they're permanently suspended. Right on. And, and those are both federal and state regulations, right? Correct. So states also uh, regulate telehealth in various ways. Um, and kind of in terms of what I think is going to happen, we have seen more states this year when their legislature has been in session, we have seen more states look at very serious proposals to overhaul telehealth regulations. One great example is Arizona. Um, and Arizona honestly does a lot of great stuff. <laughs> Uh, in, the, in the past few years. And one of the uh, things happening there is uh, a representative in Arizona introduced a bill that would basically overhaul the telehealth system. And one of the really cool things about it is that it says, okay, um, typically if, you're, if you live in Arizona um, and you talk to your doctor via telehealth, well, that doctor has to be licensed in Arizona for you to receive those services, right? Right. What they're saying in this legislation is if you are in Arizona and you see a doctor who's licensed uh, in good standing in any state, you can access them via telehealth. They no longer have to be just like, or licensed in Arizona. And that kind of opens up the door to a lot of things, right? It opens you up to specialists, kind of yeah. in the example I gave earlier, if someone says, hey, here's a specialist based here, um, you can talk to them via telehealth. It's also for people, Arizona has a huge population that they call the snowbirds, right? These are people that right. escape the winters and they go live in Arizona. Well, this way they can still talk to their regular doctor back in their home state. And that doctor doesn't have to go through any regulatory hoops uh, 
uh, to provide services in Arizona. So it's, it's automatically opening up access for all Arizonans. And one of the cool things I think about that proposal is that it no longer, it, it, well, it levels the playing field in an interesting way. So let's say, let's say you are a snowbird and you come to Arizona for the winter and you talk to your doctor uh, before you leave. And he says, well, I need to see you in you know six weeks. And let's say, okay, well, then you have to fly back to, let's say New York state or something to see him. Well, if you can't afford that, if you're living in Arizona and you can't afford to, you know, go back and forth to a sort of specialist, um, th then you can't, you can't access doctors that way. So what's interesting is with this proposal, now all of a sudden, all of those people who can't afford this previously can use telehealth to access those specialists or doctors that are out of state. So it's really an interesting way of not only improving access, but equitable access um, for yeah. some of this telehealth stuff. No, I think that makes perfect sense. And that's, I, that is a really cool thing to think about how that changes the landscape for people and the, the choices they have. And, and on this point about, you know, things being equitable, right before we uh, started recording, we were talking about Wi-Fi and you were saying that you were having trouble with your Wi-Fi today. And that's sort of what your expectations are where you live in that. So outside of telehealth, because even with telehealth, there's going to be some differences. Like you, again, you may say, well, I, I would love to access this specialist somewhere else, which I can now do through telehealth. But when it comes right down to it, you know, I'm still going to need something here locally. I can't do, I can't do everything by telehealth. What kinds of changes have you seen in terms of outside of telehealth, like scope of practice, that kind of thing, like things that have been adjusted in terms of healthcare as a result of the pandemic uh, that you'd love to see stay in place or be refined, I guess, and be even better. Yeah, so scope of practice is a really interesting one. And this is also state and federal, but it's primarily on the state level. Um, so by scope of practice, right, we mean what the state you live in, if you are a licensed professional, um, what the state you live in says you can or cannot do with your license. Um, and in the case of, of healthcare professionals, right, we're talking about physicians, pharmacists, nurse practitioners, uh, registered nurses, physician assistants, there's all kinds of medical professionals. And I think at least I did before this became my main uh, course of study was, okay, if you're a nurse, surely you can do the same thing no matter where you are with your license, right? Like that just makes Seems sense. Seems reasonable. You're, yeah. 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 You're trained at schools out of state. You can move somewhere else and get licensed. Like, you know, you think these are kind of uniform across the board and turns out that's not the case, um, particularly for uh, healthcare professionals uh, that are non-physicians. Um, it turns out that a lot of the states regulate what these professionals can and cannot do in different ways. And uh, so one of the interesting ones, right, is uh, an, or a newer one that I think is really exciting. And I think that kind of illuminates where we are now is pharmacists prescribing certain medications um, and even administering vaccines. Um, prior to the pandemic, something that was becoming more popular was um, outsourcing some sort of basic medication uh, screenings for patients who want to see, receive prescriptions. And this is for things like travel medications, um, strep tests. Um, and then the most uh, fascinating example to me is birth control prescriptions. Uh, basically, some states were saying, hey, we have kind of a healthcare shortage here anyway. We, you know, doctors are kind of hard to come by. Is there anything we can do to make it easier to access? And this is um, one of the things that's kind of caught on in popularity, particularly for those interested in regulatory reform, 
was, you know, there, there are lots of different solutions to that, right? If, there, if doctors are hard to come by, you can incentivize more doctors to come to your state. Um, but then there's also this like, hey, we have this sort of untapped workforce that's already really highly trained, especially in medication. Um, what if they're able to do more of this? And so in the case of birth control, it was, okay, it turns out that a lot of the leading medical organizations have said for years now that hormonal birth control, like the birth control pill, for example, um, is actually safer over-the-counter use. So we don't even really need a prescription, um, but that is a federal issue. And so on the state level, they said, well, hey, what if we let pharmacists prescribe it? And they follow the same procedures as the doctor, but we let them prescribe it because it's pretty easy to do. Um, so, well, for, at least for those that are highly trained, <laughs> not for right, not right. for me, <laughs> right? <laughs> but for those who are highly trained, it's pretty easy for them to, to adapt to that model. Um, and so you started seeing similar things happening on the state level. So that's one example is pharmacists being able to prescribe certain medications. Another one is, um, for nurse practitioners, some states don't allow them to prescribe every uh, level of scheduled drug. And uh, nurse practitioners are very highly trained. And the fact that if you live in one state and can prescribe every scheduled drug to your patients, but in another state you can't, that's kind of odd because again, these people are being trained and, and tested at a uniform level, but they're not able to practice at a uniform level. Um, so some of those restrictions have loosened up. The other one is um, a lot of states have supervisory requirements for nurse practitioners. So you may have run into this. I actually noticed it at my doctor's office, which was you have doctors in the office, but you also have some nurse practitioners. And the yep. reason they're together is usually there's a supervisory requirement saying, if you're a nurse practitioner operating independently, you do have to be supervised by a physician in these certain ways. Um, and some states will say a doctor can supervise up to you know X number of nurse practitioners. In another state, it's he can... Uh, supervise up to Y number of practitioners, right? right? So these things, what kind of became clear was that these standards across the states weren't uniform. And one of the things that suggests pretty strongly is that then we must not be, these restrictions must not be in place because of some very rigid safety requirement, right? Right, um, right? If in one state you can do one thing and another state you can do not as much or more, what, why are those differences there um, if not for certain safety requirements? Um, and so you saw quite a few scope of practice issues coming up over the past year. One of the great examples is um, uh, a lot of governors issued uh, emergency orders allowing pharmacists to refill prescriptions for an emergency period, um, right? And so all of a sudden pharmacists were able to sort of at their discretion say, okay, what is medication for? Is this something that's a you know, chronic condition or an acute condition? And they had that authority to make that call. Um, so that was an interesting one. And then you also saw a lot of states open up the borders for scope of practice and said, hey, if you're a nurse in, uh, you know, New Jersey, Arkansas, wherever, and we have this, you know, this height of the pandemic in New York, you can come here, you don't have to be licensed here, we just need your help. And so right. you saw a lot of these restrictions kind of being wiped away immediately. And then, um, you know, they're slowly starting to sort of dwindle down. But it's been really interesting to see how uh, scope of practice has become a little more popular in terms of uh, state reform. And yeah. the, the most, I guess, uh, relevant one right now is that prior to the COVID vaccine, I, I think a lot of people weren't aware of, I was to some extent, but I will say not as much as uh, once I started looking into it, which is that um, depending on the state you're in as a pharmacist, that dictated which vaccines you could administer and to who. 
Um, so I like to use the example of Tennessee, North Carolina, and South Carolina. If you want a flu vaccine in one of those three states, and this is exempting the COVID vaccine because basically the way it worked was that the federal government said, okay, every pharmacist can give the COVID vaccine to anyone over this certain age. But if you wanted something like a flu vaccine before mm -hmm. the pandemic and you lived in Tennessee, I think it was like if you were between the, or if you were over the age of six, you could go to a pharmacist for a flu vaccine, no questions asked. Here in North Carolina, I think it was if you were over 12, you were allowed to get one from a pharmacist without anything. But if you were between six and 12, you had to have a prescription from a doctor and then go to a pharmacist to get your flu vaccine. In South Carolina, there was like a 10 year old barrier and up. And so it was just like, why are these so piecemeal? Like it, this can't be based on, again, like the safety of it because- Right, because you don't like, see huge very, differences in flu rates and that, and you know, somebody because they're not getting it when they're six or whatever, are, yeah. Exactly, you didn't see that, but the one thing you did see in some states was that there were lower rates of vaccination in states where um, pharmacists weren't able to administer as many vaccines as other states. Because the cost of going in to get the pharmacist to administer a vaccine is so much lower than it is to have to get to your, you know, GP who's, you know, or your pediatrician or whatever, who's got, you know, a waiting list or takes three weeks to get in there. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And not only that, but just the fact that if someone's on the fence about getting a vaccine, again, not the COVID vaccine, but let's say for measles, uh, for the flu, whatever, if they're on the fence and they don't know where they can go, they're probably going to be like, eh, I'm not going to worry about it. Yeah. But if they're at their pharmacist, if they're at CVS, Walgreens, you know, at a grocery store that has a pharmacy, there's usually signs like, hey, go get your flu shot. Right. Um, and so it's just easier to get it. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I want to circle back to this thing about the differences uh, in different states that border each, well, different states generally having different rules about it. But before we do that, I want to, I want to stay on the vaccine thing for a minute. So we've talked about places where regulations have been rolled back, changes that, you know, it would be great to see refined or maintained after the pandemic. Something that is forward looking that I can imagine there being a lot of regulation about uh, is this idea of vaccine passports. And I know a bunch of people who, you know, um, my dad said to me the other day, I got my second shot. He's like, don't lose that card. Don't lose that card. You know, it's going to be really important. And the state sends me, you know, um, a QR code or, you know, something that's official from the state. But do you see the idea? I mean, one, do you think there are going to be vaccine passports? But two, uh, because this will be a new thing, will there be a bunch of regulation put in place about this and requirements? I mean, what are you thinking about? I know it's early days, but. Vaccine passports, the thing that I find fascinating is that there seem to be a whole lot of questions and not very many answers. And again, from a policy perspective, that can kind of be a good thing sometimes. Right, so if we had, um, you know, so basically what's happened so far is the Biden administration has said, has well, it has advised um, federal agencies to look into guidelines on vaccine passports, but the administration has said it will leave vaccine passport requirements up to states and the private sector. Basically saying, we're not gonna require anything federally. Uh, we might issue some guidelines on like best practices, but states and private businesses will be able to decide whether or not they require a vaccine passport. Um, which is good in that sense, but the sort of where the questions come into play, um, and the reason I say sometimes it's good we don't have answers, was if you know the Biden administration had come out and said, okay, here's what you have to have for a vaccine passport as a state, 
um, well, we don't really have enough information yet to establish those guidelines. So we'd just be kind of running over ourselves um, if we issued those early. So it's good we don't have those answers, but the questions, um, one of which was answered this past week was, okay, how long are these vaccines effective for? Mm. So if we're, if we're issuing a vaccine passport that says you have to show proof that you've had the vaccination, um, you know, to travel, let's say, let's, to fly, um, and yeah. the air travel industry is very interested in vaccine passports and developing one. Well, the Pfizer CEO came out this week and said, we think that there's probably going to need to be a booster shot. I think he said six months after uh, your second dose and that he foresaw this becoming an annual vaccination. Okay, so now we've opened up the, the vaccine passport thing into, okay, initially you may have had to show proof of your vaccination, but now are you going to have to show proof of every booster shot or, right. you know, things that you've gotten? And, you know, to some extent, that's not a huge barrier if you're traveling internationally. This is already a thing, right? Basically, some countries do require you to show proof of certain vaccines uh, or certain vaccinations before you enter right. the country. So that's not totally out of the, out of the uh, ordinary. But what is kind of out of the ordinary is seeing um, some individual businesses require this yeah. and we don't really know the longevity of these vaccines, right? And then of course, the controversy with Johnson and Johnson, which um, is supposed to come back. But what if you receive the Johnson and Johnson vaccine and they don't have any guidelines on that particular vaccine for the right. passports? Um, so there, there are just a lot of questions. The good thing so far has been, I think a lot of people have held off on requiring vaccine passports. Yeah. Um, there are some exceptions. New York State, for example, has one. It's not, my understanding, it's not required of every citizen in New York. But basically what Governor Cuomo did was they rolled out a vaccine passport that private businesses could use if they wanted to. Um, so you kind of have that model too, where the state yeah. will, will uh, issue it, but you can choose whether or not to enforce it. Um, so that's kind yeah. of an interesting model of how they've done it. So, I mean, so far, I don't think that vaccine passports are going to be as bad as they could potentially be. Um, <laughs> and then of course the hope, right, is that um, we might get to herd immunity before we kind of figure any of this out. And in that case, maybe we won't need vaccine passports, right? Yeah. Um, it might be something that's kind of like, oh, we, you know, we were all uh, in, a, in a tizzy about vaccine passports, but while we were all fighting over them, everybody got vaccinated. And so we don't really need to worry about them anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's kind well, of the hope. And I mean, along the lines of what we talked about a little bit earlier, if someone did come in and say, um, whether it's it, especially if it was the federal government that said, here's what you're going to have to do. It closes off all the different solutions that we might come up with to the need, right? I mean, the need isn't just to have um, some kind of bureaucracy. It's about safety, right? It's to say, uh, you know, we can verify somehow that they're given all the things that we've had to avoid in the last year and all the concerns we did have. Here's something that gives you some sense of safety or whatever, Again, that's not an unreasonable demand or want, but nothing like that happens without all kinds of costs and bureaucracy that grow up around it. And if we haven't had any mandates, people can still be thinking creatively about how to solve the problem of meeting that need of verifying safety, right? You know, I, I assume that if the airlines uh, could had something that was reliable, but it wasn't a federal mandate, they'd be happy with that, right? So... Um, okay, so now I just want to circle back on this question about states. Um, and we talk, you talked a little bit about it in terms of uh, vaccine passport and businesses. Actually, this is, this is relevant to private businesses. So when we talk about these variations in regulations in state, 
that are not safety related, right? It's not the case that just because different states have these different regulations, it's, it's, they are not, um, their credibility is not borne out by some safety issue, right? You talked about flu vaccines in North Carolina and Tennessee um, and South Carolina and the differences there. So we can say, well, when you see those differences, right, one state may have a better idea in terms of making vaccines more available, serving different populations, that kind of thing. And we can look at that and we can say, well, if South Carolina is more effective uh, and is doing a better job in terms of delivering flu vaccines, in terms of keeping people healthy than Tennessee or, you know, North Carolina, shouldn't we make everybody be like South Carolina? I think when we, we think about these differences and we say, some of them are just a matter of history, right? They've been there. Nobody's gone back and changed it. What I know, I, I suspect you're not saying is, therefore, all of these things should be uniform, right? You still want to preserve states' abilities to make different decisions, but without the inefficiency that might come from things that are just standing there. Like, how do we parse that? I mean, I think there are lots of people who are going to say, well, then let's just have the federal government mandate this for people because they can go around and they can look and they can say, oh, wow, South Carolina is doing a good job. We're going to make everybody else do that. Um, what's the argument against that is what I'm going to ask you. That's what makes this so fascinating is that uh, normally people like me who work on regulatory reform also believe in federalism. We believe in the idea of states to be able to uh, have the authority to say what happens in their state rather than leaving it to the federal government. Um, and for the most part, that's because there are usually some pretty big problems that come with that. Um, and so, right, it's that thing of like, okay, we want more uniformity because some of these are sort of arbitrary restrictions. Who's going to do that and how? And so the best way is for basically uh, state lawmakers to see, uh, uh, hey, we have, you know, our restrictions are uh, the most highly restrictive on, let's say, nurse practitioners in the country. Okay, why is that? Are we, um, are we seeing any sort of negative outcomes in other states that we're trying to avoid? Uh, the answer is probably not. And so maybe it's time for us to just update that regulation, basically uh, update that, that uh, uh, paradigm. And so that's like the best way to go about it. You also have uh, an interesting thing where, um, and I think a lot of people who are in licensed professions may know of something like this, which is basically a compact. Um, so there are things like nurse licensure compacts where basically this external group says, hey, we have sort of this uniform language and licensure um, agreement. And then states can, uh, they can, through the legislature, usually uh, they can choose to adopt that to be part of the compact. And basically what that says is, okay, if you're part of this, this compact and nurses in your state um, are licensed under this compact, then they can go to these other states that are in the compact and have the, these sort of uniform restrictions and they don't have to be re-licensed in another state that they're moving to. Um, and so some people prefer that. There are um, pros and cons to that, to that model, um, but that's another way to do it is you sort of have this third party um, pressure on states to do that. Um, and they're usually within their own profession, right? The nurse licensure compact is run by people who are nurses, so um, they're familiar. So that's another way to do it. And so you're, I guess the thing is you're going to get disparities among the states no matter what. And that is overall preferable, uh, at least to me, than having this become a federally mandated thing across the state. 
Um, and the reason is, again, back to that federalism argument, you want the states to have that discretion over the, or at least uh, over their own state, right? To, to say what you can and cannot do with your license. Um, and that's, that's just generally because I think state lawmakers do know, kind of back to what we were talking about in the beginning, as being in DC versus being in the state, you know, as a state lawmaker, much better than, you know, federal lawmakers do about your, your home state. Yeah, um, your local your, circumstances. and Exactly, exactly. And one of the interesting uh, things about that is that, you know, someone could say to play devil's advocate, they could say, but why don't we just have the federal government issue guidelines on this? Like, what if they say, hey, every state should allow pharmacists to administer vaccines to anyone over the age of six, any, you know, FDA approved vaccine or whatever it is. Um, and you could say, okay, sure. But then what could happen is, you know, five to 10 years later, we get down the road. Um, we have, well, actually, this is a great example of COVID, right? Uh, five years ago, we didn't have a COVID problem. We also didn't have a COVID vaccine. Well, if the federal government had said, okay, any pharmacist can issue uh, any vaccine that's FDA approved. And then we get a pandemic, which, um, you know, again, natural right. experiment. Right. And we don't have that, that federal approval. States might be like, well, it's not up to us. The federal government has to issue this. Um, and so what can actually happen, I think, is if you yeah. leave it to the uniformity is that you end up not being able to experiment. So states can say, yeah. hey, we're going to try lowering these barriers even more in this way. Um, so you kind of, I think, get a race to the bottom rather than a race yeah. to the top, right? So um, allowing that flexibility among states allows them to experiment and come up with really creative ways of regulating these things. Um, and a fascinating example of this is Idaho. Uh, their board of pharmacy has, uh, it's kind of its own in, in all the 50 states, it has such a unique model. Their model is basically, they were going to allow pharmacists to do more. They wanted them to be able to administer certain routine tests, that immunizations, um, and even furnish some medication. And the way most states do that is that there's usually a legislative proposal for pharmacists, uh, kind of earlier what I was talking about, to be able to prescribe birth control. And so mm -hmm. right for every single medication that um, it became uh, appropriate for, for pharmacists to administer or to, to furnish, uh, there'd have to be a legislative vote on each one. And basically what Idaho said was, you know what, don't give us individual proposals for each medication. We're going to leave it to the board of pharmacy. And basically we, there is not going to be a list of things you can prescribe. There's only going to be a list of things you absolutely cannot prescribe. And so basically what they stopped was this back and forth. And it's the most, um, autonomous model for pharmacists in the country. And right, like, I don't think you would get some of those natural um, changes and experiments in being innovative when it comes to healthcare access, if you had these, if, if it was all on the federal government's shoulders, right, then we'd right. be um, a lot more hard to move, basically. Yeah, yeah, no, I like that. I mean, I like the way you put that. Because I think what it says is, if we can see disparities and we can between states and we can say that those disparities are not ideal, the solution to that can't be blanketing everybody with the same rules because differences matter, local knowledge matters, all of those things. So instead of saying, when we see those disparities, let's solve it by centralizing everything you're saying, let's make sure we get the information to people. Let's try and diminish those cases, but preserve the, the freedom of all these different states and municipalities to be thinking about what works best for them because others will learn from that too. It's just kind of, it's the opposite of the race to the bottom, I suppose. That's great. 
this is so much good information. And I think our audience will be really interested. Courtney, if people want to follow your work, where is the best place for them to follow you and see the research you're doing and read your, your papers? Sure. So you can find me at rstreet.org and that's just the letter R, street.org. Um, on our team, you'll see me on the competition policy side. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter at Courtney Atlas, where um, I don't promise to have a ton of hard-hitting investigative uh, policy work, but uh, some, I, I definitely like to tweet some of the stuff that we're working on that I think is really cool. And some of my colleagues are working on some really interesting stuff in this space. Um, but there is the occasional dog photo, if that's ever your thing. You know, people there. just gotta, <laughs> just gotta get used to that cost of doing business on Twitter, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we will look forward to that and we will link to um, our street in your bio and everything in the show notes, as well as um, some of the papers and some of the research that you've done. So we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. hope you enjoyed our conversation. I know I learned a lot from Courtney in particular about telehealth. And I was looking at a letter that she had recently written to the subcommittee on health, energy, and commerce about telehealth. And one of the things she says is one of the things that I'm really going to take away from this conversation. And that is that the COVID-19 pandemic fundamentally changed how millions of Americans access healthcare providers. So while we're thinking about relief in some ways about the coming, we hope, of the end of the pandemic, it is really worth thinking about and talking about with one another the fact that so many things about our healthcare changed in response to this crisis. I think in addition to being relieved that there is light at the end of the tunnel, we really need to capitalize on the opportunity to learn from what we saw. And I hope that in your conversations and in your thinking about healthcare, you will find some of what Courtney said to be able to prompt more creative solutions, more creative thinking about policy and just about how we let really smart people figure out how to make improvements in this world by limiting the ways we regulate them. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. We'll see you next time for another conversation.